This episode of The Ship Show is sponsored by PagerDuty. PagerDuty eliminates the noise, chaos, and manual processes across the entire incident lifecycle. PagerDuty helps you see by giving you visibility across your entire stack, act so you can get the right person or team for each problem, resolve the issue to fix problems before your customers even notice, analyze the spot trends in the incidents to understand the stress on both your teams and your systems, and prevent incidents by making proactive fixes to reach your organization's uptime goals. PagerDuty is trusted by companies like Etsy, Nike, and GitHub. To sign up for a free 30-day trial, visit www.pagerduty.com. To ship, of course. It's time again for Build Engineering DevOps Release Management and everything in between. It's the Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Silver Build Eng on Twitter and at SilverBuildEngineer.com. Who's with me for the Post Velocity episode? This is EJ Saramella, E. Saramella on Twitter. This is Pete Cheslock, Pete Cheslock on Twitter. And this is Yusuf, Build Scientist on Twitter. How are we all doing this fine evening? Yeah, good. <laughs> doing good. Good. Good to hear it. Well, tonight for uh, episode 44, we're going to be talking with Lynette Kramer, QA practitioner, does context-based QA and some agile QA practices. We're going to be talking about what does quality mean? Are we in a post-quality world? Uh, what does it mean for continuous integration, continuous delivery, and having a conversation about that, and, and also a little bit uh, on the culture of quality in an, in an organization, quality assurance in an organization. So that is coming up soon, but of course, first up, as always, new news and views. So there was some mumblings going on about code spaces and sadness with people using code spaces. Uh, did you guys see this? Pour one out for code spaces. Yeah. Yeah. That. So for those that didn't see it, basically somebody got a hold, it sounds like, of their AWS keys and within some number of hours deleted everything on S3 and all of their EC2 instances and just literally all their EBS snapshots, all the AMIs, everything. Yeah, Sad. pretty rough to hear. I mean, and um, I guess it, they must not have had two-factor. They were probably using, like, root credentials in there. Um, yeah, yeah. There was some rumbling, and I was, I was trying to find the link, and I'll, I'll try to find this for the show notes, but there was some discussions about some other people that had been sort of attacked by this, and it was like, was there, you know, there were some people, and this is maybe on Twitter, like, we're asking, is there, like, an Amazon thing where they're leaking AWS key somehow or something like that? I can remember back in the day when we started using, you know, and this was, like, three or four years ago, it's like you got your set of AWS keys and like there wasn't really a way to change it and there wasn't two-factor auth yet and we had people leave the company and I, I you know I was that guy and I asked like can we change these keys and and at that time it wasn't like there wasn't a process and th- again this was like what probably six years ago six seven years ago I mean it was really early so yeah what do you guys think is it a new attack vector I, I don't think so like I think if you if you just search GitHub you'll find a metric butt ton of keys out there like who knows how the, how they grabbed it? But the other thing too is like if they used IAM roles or something like that and set those up properly. Like there's plenty better ways to be protecting yourselves and hard coding those keys anywhere. So I don't know. Maybe it's a combination of things. One thing that's important too, I think that this you know they talked about in their webpage, I guess how they were how they had backups and how the backups were tested, and that was that was like their their kind of claim to fame. But their backups were on the same account and the same infrastructure. So I guess in my mind, those don't really count as backups. 
Well, and it's interesting, right, because there's that whole thing about a backup isn't a backup unless it's tested, and they did test it, but it wasn't, you know, this is one of those complex system things. It's, it got you. I don't know. I think there's going to be a lot of people, myself included, actually, going back and looking at the best practices for handling the the credentials and maybe doing audits of their own internal Git or GitHub repos. <laughs> Definitely um, an eye-opener for, for lots of people. should be. Yeah. Yeah, really. Uh, next up, we have a Docker container breakout proof of concept exploit. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, Yusuf, you pointed this out to us, and we should point out, just to be clear, that uh, 1.0, which we talked about last episode, is not vulnerable, but if you haven't upgraded, it can be a problem. Yusuf. Yeah, kind of an interesting uh, issue. I guess uh, somebody came up with a proof of concept, uh, wrote a proof of, con- proof of concept in C, where, you know, keep in mind, you're running Docker, it's a shared kernel with your containers are sharing the kernel with each other. So basically that through some I know trickery allows you to kind of jump through um, various files and basically run or read pretty much anything out there on that system. So yeah, kind of scary. And the interesting thing that Docker is saying is basically, you know, obviously don't run anything in privilege mode uh, on in your containers and you should run SE Linux. And there's been a whole bunch of discussions about, well, is that reasonable? Because who the hell runs SE Linux and all that <laughs> stuff? So yeah, yeah. Interesting, um, uh, interesting stuff. So I have to point this out because I saw this on the tweet sphere, and it might have even been DockerCon or, or may I don't even know. But containers on Linux are a a newer, not totally new, but newer technology. And it's interesting. There's this sort of like, oh, their containers are totally better than virtualization. And and there was the, the comment on Twitter was something about VMware saying, oh, we have no problem with containers because you can run it on VMware. You can run it in a VM. And there's this snarky like, ho ho ho, they don't get it. And it's like, you know, if you are a hosting provider, this shit don't fly. Like, yes, you have containers, but it's like it could be on the order of a lawsuit if you had a shared container space. And this is why there's sort of that layers of defense. So this like in uh, original virtualization technology, we went through this kind of cat and mouse game in the first few years of it, it about making sure that you could not break out of the VM. And there were some early exploits about that. And it's like, here's the thing, like, it's not a simple problem. Don't be a jerk thinking that containers are immune to this stuff. Like, it's software, it has bugs, yeah. like, all other uh, stuff. I want to be clear, I like Docker, but this sort of attitude around because we have containers, everything else is pointless, like, clearly not. I think you got to be careful when you're running untrusted code, because that's essentially what this is, is you would only run this, this is like untrusted code that you'd be running. So like you said, Paul, it's like if you're a hosting provider, then you probably want to be more cautious around your use of containers in general. But, you know, I think if you're using this internally with your own code, I think it's something you should be aware of. But um, I'm pretty sure they said their best practice was you should never run stuff in privileged mode. So you'd have to be running it against the best practices to even be affected, essentially. Yeah, but that never happens, right? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> well, I, th- I think it's going to get interesting. I mean, you know, there's all these debates about you run Docker on bare metal or you run it in a, inside a hypervisor. So it's, it's going to be, I, I'm, I don't know, I'm predicting that we're going to be seeing more of this type of stuff pop up. So, well, and, and here's the thing. Like I said, I like containers. I like Docker. And this is a result of them becoming popular. Like all the hackers and, and people that like make a living off of finding exploits are like, hey, let's go put this stuff through its paces. So net net, this is good. Just uh, drop the attitude about 
hey, there's no bugs. Next up, we have something interesting from the cultural side. Uh, Riot Games basically is now offering new employees to leave at any time within their first 60 days, and they'll get 10% of their annual salary if they don't find the culture to their liking. EJ, you pointed us at Yeah, I, I thought it was kind of weird, you know, in this day and age of corporate culture above everything. Um, I thought it was interesting. They're not the first people to do this. Uh, it's definitely the biggest uh, incentive that I've seen out there. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, there have been plenty of places also, like, to, gone to and then realized, like, I'm not a great fit here. Uh you know, maybe I passed an interview or, or uh, enjoyed working with somebody at a distance, but now now that I'm neck deep in it, this is a different animal. So I can totally understand the desire to give people the, the escape route. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I uh, I had that similar experience. I wonder, I mean, here's a question for you guys. Do you think 60 days is enough? I mean, I, I had this where it's like, and we actually talked about this on the burnout episode, Pete. Like, I only realized about four months, four or five months after I had really been in the organization and learned, uh, honestly, uh, it was an organization that was bogged down in politics. You can't learn that in 60 days a lot of times. It took me yeah. longer. One I found in 30 days, one took longer than the, the 60 or 90 days time period. So yeah. it's, it's hard, but it's I think I like that just because it gives everyone that out, right? You get to try it. So instead of like the try before you buy where you might do like a consulting gig, this is kind of like, it's kind of the same thing in reverse where it's like you can go all in on it, but if it just doesn't work out. It's like There's still that parachute ripcord. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and, and, you know, that's an interesting thing, too, because that is actually very popular now, the the consulting, you know, consultant to hire. But that obscures the thing that, yeah, I mean, consultants are different than employees. And, and we saw this at Microsoft years ago where their badges were different colors, and there were some cultural impacts to that. So it, it's definitely one of those, we would talk a lot about DevOps culture, one of those that maybe that's a, <laughs> that'll be a perk, 10% of your salary. If you're not happy within, maybe this standard will become four to five or four to six months or something like that. So it's certainly something I would like to see. Last up tonight, we have uh, something a little bit fun. We'll link to it. Uh, it's the Unix history repo on GitHub. It has old utilities from back in the day, back in like AT&T and BSD. And it actually has a bunch of branches. So you can like BSD1, BSD2, old free BSD stuff, 386 BSD. I see Bell 32V. So like super old stuff that I'm just glad somebody's recording this somewhere and making it easy to find. It's not languishing in some developer's bookshelf in tape format. My favorite, though, is if you go through there, I just clicked on the Bell Development Branch. Yeah. And I just went into a folder, and it was uh, a couple of people had authored on May 3rd, 1979. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. And I'm looking at some of the tools that are in here. There's, uh, oh, I bet you LibC is, the old, like, LibC is fascinating. Yeah, so cool. I keep bringing up these kind of fun, old, you know, historical things just because, I, I, I don't know, I think it's part of our history and we're, as an industry, not very good at looking at our history and noticing some of the awe-inspiring things that people had to do back in, you know. Yeah, to your point, Pete, I'm looking at this column on the, the Bell Development Branch and all of the dates are 36 years ago. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, next up, uh, Lynette Kramer and QA here on The Ship Show.
All right, welcome back to the Ship Show. For our main segment tonight, we're having a conversation with Lynette Kramer, who's an agile tester and does a lot of work in the testing and QA space. Welcome to the Ship Show, Lynette. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I thought it would be good to start with, you've been doing QA and QA-related stuff for quite a while now. Why don't you tell us about your background and, and the type of work that you focus on and what stuff you find interesting uh, in that space? Great. Well, I got started in testing sort of as an accident I had to change jobs early on I was I was a shift manager at a bingo parlor that benefited the big sisters of King County so I went from working in gambling and I was sort of their computer expert I moved them from pieces of paper to Excel spreadsheet back in the early 90s. That was high technology back then. Totally. So (laughs) people would call me with an emergency, Lynette, the computer's down. All I see is a blinking cursor. It's terrible. And I'd I'd just wake up and be like, type in W-I-N, enter. And they'd all start cheering. (laughs) The miracle. Oh, my goodness. Windows 3 is up and running. You know? Yeah. (laughs) The funniest time when it was so easy to be a hero in computing. (laughs) Just because you knew DOS, but I got in this car accident and I was not willing to drive at night anymore and I took a temporary job doing tech support for this outsource company. So basically I did tech support for Adobe PageMaker and I told myself, well, I'm just going to do this until my car is fixed. It's not a permanent job. I don't know if I can work with all these nerdy guys. It's going to be awful, but I'm not going to drive at night. So anyways, I took the job and I totally loved it. Within six months, I was doing level two support and then they came out with Adobe InDesign and I was their first tech support person on Adobe InDesign. And I had learned the stuff, the Adobe technologies, because I was a graphic design student at Western, and I thought I wanted to be a designer. So I was into the type technologies and the Macs and everything, as well as the PC, and I ended up loving it. I had a job doing tech support full-time for Windows 2000 when they were going to launch that, and then I got an opportunity to interview for a testing job at Adobe on InDesign. And because I loved it from before, I took that interview and... I got the temp job, and I decided to go for the temp job over there, and I ended up really almost quitting because I thought testing was so boring. I finally got so bored that I went off the script and found like 14 bugs in one day after not finding any bugs, (laughs) and then I, I ended up loving testing. So basically, I had to get to the point where I was about to quit before I discovered how to do testing because if you follow the rules and do what they say is a good practice, testing is a dull, terrible job that no one could stand. But no one who stays in testing or actually does testing work works like they say they do. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, and I remember back in that day, a lot of times it was, you know, people would, would hire armies of QA engineers and it was like, here's signature desk and click, you know, run through that's this. That's exactly what it was. I had, had 20,000 test cases on how to transform a box. Seri- <laughs> I mean, seriously, they had me doing things like rotate one degree, rotate two degrees, rotate three degrees. I mean, it was insane. <laughs> And um, I was about to quit. one through 360. (laughs) Exactly. So it it was fun that time. And so I stayed at Adobe for 10 years, and I worked on Across the Creative Suites. I really enjoyed that. And there came a time, it was quite an interesting time at Adobe. They had an annual layoff procedure that went on for about 12 years, and I made it through the first seven. And then the eighth time... I was on the layoff list, and I was all worried about it. I actually ended up unemployed for five days. (laughs) (laughs) So it turned out a financially great thing that they laid me off, and they were so good to me. And I'm actually currently 
the company I'm with is a partner of Adobe. Oh, and so nice. I still work with a lot of Adobe people, and I love Adobe. They've had some interesting management decisions, but all in all, great engineers, great technology. And since then, I had a time when I was an independent consultant, and I worked with medical data, some really hardcore database technologies. I worked for unknown coffee company headquartered in Seattle that makes nice caffeinated beverages <laughs> you might have heard of. And uh, that was really cool. I got a huge trial by fire of the grocery market and how you ship hundreds of products that have these expiration dates, how you do it efficiently and how you promote things. It was really interesting. And how SKUs and UPCs work. So that right. was a interesting area to work in. And so now I work the last two years. I w was the first ever tester hired by Silicon Publishing. And we started off not really having even a build verification or even a build setup. So now we have continuous I, integration. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, I know that story well. It's a very common story. Yeah. And we have now myself and another tester who I worked with at Adobe, a really experienced guy named Matt. And I really like what I do. I work closely with developers, and we also work really closely with different customers who are doing wildly unpredictable things with our product. Some of them are working across all of Europe, and they use languages and characters I'm, I haven't used in years, and I have to go back and figure that all out. <laughs> Fun with some, Unicode. Yeah, totally. And some of them have hundreds of thousands of customers a day and some of them do really small custom jobs that have all these pages and text flowing in where others we have uh, card companies that we work with that just have tiny blurbs of text and then we'll work with someone who has a hundred page document broken into sections so there's a lot of variety and so Silicon Publishing the last few years I have been working there and I really like it it's a small company and there's always a lot to do but I love that I'm supported in trying new things. Well, so I am actually want to talk to you about the sort of journey from like no build process, no sort of kind of any structure around that to continuous integration because that's something we talk a lot about on the show and, and uh, is, is always an interesting story to talk about organizationally. But I noticed that on your blog you talk about your student of context, the context-driven school of testing. And I was yeah. wondering like, what? yeah, it's, what is that? I've well, never heard that before. You, you have noticed my blog hasn't been updated in two years for good reason. <laughs> I used to go to about 12 conferences a year. Uh -huh. And when you're paying for everything yourself and you have to miss work to do it, you don't go to that many conferences anymore. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't afford the time away from work and all the cost of going. And then also I was really kind of attacked and stalked by a few people, so I'm kind of over it. Mm -hmm. When you spend hours of your time to put together a talk and you get a comment about your outfit instead of somebody willing to actually talk to you about the topic you specialize in that you've worked really hard on, it's hard to care about putting in a lot of effort. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. let's just say I'm very disappointed in a small percentage of the testing community. Maybe 3% of the people really suck, mm -hmm. and they make it difficult for the other rest of us. That, that too, is a common story in, in ops, and you know we, we've been talking about that as an industry more lately. Yeah, so you understand. I will say that a huge number of people have been so welcoming and amazing and great hosts for helping technology be more diverse and helping other people join it. A small amount of people are actually harassing, and they're frustrating because you can't even get away from it. So I haven't been blogging much. I've just been working. Um, mm -hmm. 
mostly because what you say is a lot less important than what you do, from what I've noticed. Mm -hmm. And so the context-driven school of testing is basically, there used to be two schools of testing. One is very certification-driven. There are people who like to talk about metrics and show you pie charts, and they describe everything being like a factory. And usually they're selling a tool, and that mm -hmm. tool is, well, with this tool, you're going to make it so your testers don't have to write any code, and we're going to automate everything. And they sell tools that are not sustainable long-term, that usually sit on the desk. They're really expensive. Mm -hmm. And they there's this false idea that if you just automate everything that currently exists, that's the hard part. And then everything's going to get easier. But the problem is there's maintenance on every single thing you ever automate. And mm -hmm. so the more where have, we, where have make, we heard this before? <laughs> the more problems there are. And so every test you refuse to throw away is another piece of commitment and time suck that you've put in. And the bugs aren't in that old junk anyways. They're in the new code you're changing. Right. So it's a total waste of time. Yeah. But people still are committed to it, and they throw money at it. And people who don't know testing love the pie charts. So anything that gives them pie charts, they get all thrilled about. Well, I don't do that. I don't lie to people for money. I do testing, and I try to do testing on the areas of code that are under change. And I try to do testing with developers. And that means that I need to know what's changing in the code. I need to work with them, and hopefully they will write unit tests, and I will write scripts that help me test, and I'm going to let them do the code-facing tests that need to happen in the code, and they're going to let me do testing on integration, usability, error handling, things that are not easy to test for in the code that they want to know about. That's actually a really fascinating thing that you called out because I've run into this, and Pete actually, maybe I think you may have run into this too. You know, people that, you know, I, I remember there was uh, a, a manager who would actually blog the monthly infrastructure load as if that was some big important metric that told you a lot, you know, encompassed all of the context you needed to know about the build environment and all this, this kind of stuff. Uh, and what was interesting is then when you dug down into the data, you found out that they were, you know, the way that it was going, you know, there were these huge huge cost overruns in the way that they were using the infrastructure. So the metrics weren't even like actually accurate or useful at all. Yeah, they uh, usually aren't. And the funniest thing is if you want to see how creative people are, start judging them based on metrics. I mean, <laughs> the most hilarious thing is people who care about the number of tests. Those people are clowns. I picture them in clown suits with bozo <laughs> wigs, literally, because they're an embarrassment to the profession of testing, really to think that's important because the second you start measuring tests, then take my cases where you transform something. How about rotation? Suddenly, there's going to be a test that validates every type of rotation from 0 to 360 degrees and then negative 1 to negative 360. That's going to tell you nothing. It's really one test, but now we have as many tests as there are degrees that are measurable. Right, right. And most of them don't validate, yet they still get credit for all of them. Right. And then they wonder why the quality sucks. Right. Well, that's what you paid for. Right, exactly. With this test that's worthless. So people get so creative at gaming the metrics that that becomes it. Like if you measure what's not important, like you don't care what the customers think, you just care about these metrics people make up, then all you get is effort on gaming the metrics. Right. And um, it's really hard to find accurate metrics. So anyways, context-driven is supposed to be about you don't believe in any best practices. You believe in what works 
in that specific context. Mm, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I had a question, um, Lynette. And you, you made an interesting comment about unit tests that developers should write unit tests. Do you, do you find that? Because I've I've worked with developers who who don't think that they should. I mean, do, do you find that these days, I and mean, maybe within the last I don't know, four to five years or so, that developers are more accepting of that? Or has it always been the case where, uh, in, in your experience, that, yeah, they, they, you know, they write code and then they write corresponding unit tests for, for that code? Because in, in my experience, it always seems to be a very touchy topic with developers. Well, um, I think it really depends on what is needed. Unfortunately, because of code coverage tools, there's a lot of unnecessary unit tests being measured that people are forced to do that it's wasteful. So I think developers have a reason to be leery and touchy because they're being micromanaged and people who can't even do their job are telling them they're doing it wrong, which is so annoying. I don't know how they tolerate it with the grace they do. (laughs) But some of them do. I mean, when you've got someone who has no technical chops or expertise telling you to do something that doesn't make sense, it's very hard to be patient. So I think they have a lot of reason for being frustrated with some of the trends that have happened in terms of data abuse. I think data and analytics are good, but people can abuse them for bad purposes. And it's that abuse that's the problem, not the data. So I think unit testing can be great and useful. But there are people who say, we must have 98% because that's the golden number. So we're going to just do that with no reason. And it's that kind of thinking that's terrible. Now, if instead you say, we're going to have unit tests that cover to this level because that's what makes sense and our engineers have agreed as a team that's what we want to do and if there's an exception we're going to look at that and make a good exception because we have to do a cost risk analysis and not just blindly shoot for numbers that don't make sense then I think the problem is not with the unit tests if that makes sense it's with how the unit tests are sometimes being enforced so so that's an interesting question you know a lot of times kind of in in the DevOps space and and in the operations context a lot of analogies are made to firefighting and you know safety you know there's a lot of you know postmortems look at like well what patterns do first responders how do they handle the situations I've on one or two occasions made the analogies to uh, aviation and safety there and a lot of the literature talks about safety but when you're running and I actually had a VP of engineering once challenge me on this uh, he was like well we're not flying an aircraft exactly um, yeah so so the question is when we talk about safety in these conversations is that quality is that are we talking about quality or how would you parse that I wouldn't because I think it really when you talk about safety you're really talking about the kind of quality that the whole team owns right so I really believe everyone's responsible for quality and my job as a tester is to bring information to the team about that quality so we can make decisions I don't think I'm responsible for quality at all I mean I am as part of the team but mm-hmm. it's not just my job. It's my mm-hmm. job to help us be more aware of what the quality is so we can make good decisions. Yeah, well, there, it was funny. There's a one of, In one of my software engineering courses, it's like, and, and you probably have run into this too, that this was back in the day, you know, there was this notion that, well, the developers would do whatever they would do and then QA would find all the bugs. And it was like, no, QA is there to reduce the number of bugs. But if you have 100 bugs going in and QA is really great and they catch 90 of them, it still means there's 10 bugs. And so it still means garbage in, garbage out sort of thing, right? Where it really is everybody's responsibility. So in terms of the safety thing, I think it's really interesting because I've had the opportunity to work on such an array of types of software. I Mm -hmm. worked 
with hospital data where privacy is deadly serious. We're talking about legal privacy here. Right. And some of our tests were creepy because behind the scenes we had to kill people in the database to make sure they couldn't come back to life like zombies. You know, weird stuff. And uh, so that's super serious. But on the other side, we have a Facebook game where if it doesn't work, you know, somebody's crop maybe doesn't get watered in the right graphic. So huge, for some people, safety is deadly serious. I was at a conference and this guy seriously worked with the missile launching software for the Navy. Wow. Yeah. That's more serious right. than airplane. We're talking about obliterating nations. I mean, really, you can't get more serious than that. Have you found it's hard to make that transition as a QA engineer or doing the whatever QA work that you're doing when you have to make a transition between those types of systems from like hospital to publishing system or, or something like that where the, the biggest issue is maybe you print something wrong and they have to return it or whatever it might be? Not anymore. It was very, very hard the first time after 10 years at Adobe, which when I was at Adobe, one of the things I really respected, the software is really expensive. And there's nothing more serious than Adobe InDesign topography. The type has to be right. And if the type isn't right, I'm talking about a tiny amount of kerning being off or a serif being slightly wrong. It's full-on panic. Right. I mean, it drives those people crazy. It's yes. Like, you don't understand how serious the type is. I mean, a typographer's quote versus a normal quote. Oh, my right. God. The world would... It's a big deal. Totally. Yes. So <laughs> I went from that to working at the grocery space where the first day I had written up these bugs and I was so proud. I brought these bugs and I said, well, here's these 10 bugs. Look at this. It crashes if you just do these two things, blah, blah, blah. And they were so disappointed. They said, we didn't hire you to find these bugs. And I was crushed. I'm like, what are you talking about? What kind of bugs would you like me to find? And they said, oh, we're only concerned about the data. This is software we can't change. We bought it. So we oh, just wow. want to we just want to test the data throughput. And so once I knew what they wanted, it was fine. But I was shocked that I could find these ways to crash their software, and they didn't care. Huh. Yeah, that's I that's interesting. Actually, we'll come back to that in a second because I'm I'm kind of curious about that's I what did... the context driven things about. By the way, just so you know, is it's about finding what issues the team thinks are important in that context. So my crashing bugs weren't important. A typographer's quote in the grocery market doesn't mean much, but in InDesign, it's a catastrophe. So that's kind of what it's about, really. Yeah, and it's nobody cares if the quote's right on the heart monitor, but it better get all the heartbeats. Exactly. I wanted to ask, because we, we talk a lot about DevOps and, and that sort of movement, if you will, on the show. There are companies that are trying to kind of do the DevOps and, and move in that direction, and you find it's not just develop. Maybe they have a component, a software component that's not just a website or service, so they may have operations people, they may have developers, but then the release engineers get swept up in it, and the QA people, because there's actually a different QA team, it's not just developers writing unit tests and whatever, get swept up in that. And I was curious what your thoughts are on sort of that transition in the industry. Had you found yourself sort of in something that's moving in that direction? or? Well, absolutely. It's been really odd. I'm lucky enough that there's a developer I work with who we needed to get Jenkins working basically because I needed consistent builds. So I took on some of it, which is really hilarious because I had to learn some Unix and how to set up the timing. So some of it I took on reading a book and the forums and just experimenting. But the, the lion's share of this our developers have really taken on as far as setting up the builds that we need. So there's two parts of it 
we have a developer who, from a book and his own experimentation, has basically taught himself Jenkins, and he's done a ton of work to improve our builds. I've helped him some. I promote our builds. I'm part of the delivery and build nodes and scheduling. Um, we all now have a way that I can test each fix as an independent build and then approve it and get them to merge together. Oh, nice. So we've gone from really pretty simple builds where we could make one final build to now I can test each fix and get it to merge into the main build and test everything together or not. And that's been really powerful because we have multiple projects at once. So I'm definitely at the bleeding edge of that mm. <laughs> right now. I love it and I think there's huge potential there. I believe we need more people who specialize in the area of helping companies get better in this space and training people to take advantage of the tools that already exist. Right, yeah. So one thing that I've, I've seen a lot in the last, I don't know, probably five or so years really as a lot of the continuous everything has come about is QA kind of turning, and, and even testing QA, however you want to put it, kind of turning into the, like the four-letter word that you should never say. And a lot of companies getting rid of their QA teams or, or essentially renaming them as like test engineering or some something else like that or just trying to like totally change up I guess how their QA teams work almost as and in some ways I've seen places do this as a way because like when QA is in their own department and focusing on purely testing obviously they find a lot of bugs but they're finding them much later in the pipeline it, maybe you can give some of your thoughts or what you've seen around that in the are you seeing more of testing getting really involved much earlier and trying to, to like, you know, maybe they're finding two or three bugs right away versus like 30 bugs right before sprint completes or something like that? Well, I like to talk about what I enjoy working on and what I'm interested in instead of kind of getting into what's happening overall in the industry because I don't want to go on a negative rant. So instead of that, what I see that's really effective that I enjoy is when you have testers working with developers and you do that in real time. So if a feature is ready and you work remote like my team does, as soon as that feature is ready, the tester can dive right in and test that in isolation and give them feedback so that the fixes are turned around very quickly. And it's not like a bug, but instead it's almost instant feedback because we can turn that around far quicker than I can write up a bunch of bug reports and we can make charts and then dole those out slowly and have people bounce them around a bunch of times. And it's far easier just to communicate with one person, show them the bug. I like to take video a lot so that they can see it happen instead of trying to describe it. And then they can fix it. So, so is there... That's an, been a good process. Is there an analogy to like pair programming there? I Definitely. mean, where it's, where it's I, almost like pair feature development or something like that? Yeah, I was just so, going to say, it sounds so much like pair programming to me. I yeah. definitely pair with the programmers a lot. And I started doing that with one programmer in particular where before he even checked in the code, I would test on his machine. And I would even go through his code with him and ask him questions about how it worked. So I only write scripts a lot of times in Python. And I, I came from writing batch files. So some Sometimes I'm really procedural in my thinking still, mm -hmm. but I use Python, but I can read a lot of languages because I have paired with people like this. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it does. I, I was going to say, it's funny. I mean, one of the things that I found when you look at, like, when you're talking to release engineers and, and how effective they can be in your organization, and Yusuf, you probably run into this too, like, if you, if you can't read a compiler error... You know, if the build breaks and know what that error means and have some sense of, like, what is the context for that 
error is in the language the team is working in, you're not going to be as effective as someone who can say, oh yeah, there's a type mismatch or you know whatever it is. And so it sounds like in that regard, it's it's similar on the QA side, where in some sense it almost sounds like you're talking about on the QA side starting to weaken those silos, as we always talking about DevOps breaking down the silos. Well, like they've, are, the they've silos. been broken for so long that anyone left. I mean, you have to realize that people who do testing, their role has been under attack now for like 15 years. Well, not 15. Let's be honest. Maybe seven years. Ever since Microsoft said, everyone must be an SDET because testing has no value. So we've got all these people now that are software development engineers and tests, which basically means people who do the testing that's needed, but they also can code and they lie about what they do. And we get interviews that have nothing to do with the actual job we do. Mm -hmm. And it's all twisted and very bizarre. So as far as being a tester in the way things are politically right now, I wouldn't recommend it to my worst enemy. I would never <laughs> tell a student to be a tester. Ooh, that's harsh. I mean, I believe I, you. It's I believe the you. Totally least appreciated you, but... place to be. Just go write code. The easiest six months I had in my job was when I just wrote automation, and I didn't have to do seven other jobs. If I didn't love testing, I'd be gone. Yeah. And yeah. most of them are. Do you think there's a way that we'll ever get to a place where more and more, because I kind of look at a lot of the uh, testing and QA people that I've worked with in the past have been kind of similar to ops in that they've always been like, well, I don't really need to code yet. And obviously, like, so much has changed in the past 10 years where more and more of everyone in every department are coding. Operations has tried to solve their, like, repetitive task problem with automation. Are we maybe going to be seeing more, like, people are people working more towards that in the I think people need to be more versatile and thoughtful, and that coding is just a part of that. One of the problems I have is how you code on a whiteboard means absolutely nothing to how well you test or how well you make automation. It's all about your thinking and how you learn and a lot less about what language you know. One thing that really irritates me is if you go to an interview, they make you write code on the whiteboard like it's so irrelevant to what we do. Another thing is everyone wants you to write these SQL queries. The last five places I've worked, any query we needed, it's not about the SQL. It's about knowing what server you're on. It's about knowing what you're doing in that server. And it's about asking for verification when you need it a lot more than it is about SQL as a language compared to something else. Yeah. I feel like we're just really missing the point a lot. Well, it seems you hear this a lot, Pete, uh, in the ops context. It's like, I, I need a chef person. And if you don't know chef, then you can't work here. And it's like, well, you could train someone on chef. You could train right. someone on SQL. Yeah, it's the whole concept so of the learning organizations where the, the best organizations are the one that provide those opportunities for people to learn versus the putting people into buckets and siloing them and saying, well, you're a chef person, so we'll just bring all of our problems about automation to you or something like that. Totally. Right. Most of the problems aren't based on the specific language. They're based on the silos, the wrong assumption, and people trying to reinvent the wheel. We have all these free tools. Like The last thing we need is another testing framework. Someone shoot me if I have to hear about another new one. Just <laughs> We need someone to get the ones working that are already there in practice. I have a super quick question. So a lot of companies, whether they're just trying to run as lean as possible or have invested really heavily in their development and maybe less in operations and then in turn less in QA, uh, over and over, I see QA struggling to keep up. Do you have any recommendations on how to, like, for instance, where I'm at right now, we have three separate sprint teams, and QA is spread very thin keeping up with them. Do you have any recommendations on how to stay, you know, at parity or something with the automation? Not not unit tests. We, totally. I, I'm talking like 
integration or yeah well for one thing you need to stop doing everything you used to do because well keep in mind we have one and a half testers and a lot of times we're working on between two and seven projects at a time and so if all we have the time and budget for is build acceptance tests that's what we do that means you don't get to have half the testers and seven times the test you have to make hard decisions about what's important and that means if you don't prioritize and budget for it it doesn't happen it sounds a lot like the and you were saying you know uh, and I wanted to ask you about this I'll ask you about this in a sec but the you know QA has sort of been under attack you find this a lot in the ops space where it's like we need to build out this data center and you need to teach your entire team chef or puppet to do it and also because we got a better deal on something we're actually moving to another data center and we're doing a big rollout for Thanksgiving so you have to have everyone on call and that you don't get any more people you don't get any more right and so there's this disconnect and I've, I've dealt with this with release engineering for like ever where it's like this disconnect and it seems if I'm parsing your answer it's like there needs to be an understanding of you can have A or B or C but you can't have them all or exactly. you have an A and B it's just yeah. Agile helps us do this. Here's a list of what we're doing this sprint. You want C, then does A or B go? And we're going to do the most we can, and we're going to do it in order. But there's only so much that's possible. And burning people out has already happened. <laughs> Stressing people out has already happened. There's there's nothing else that can give, so we need to make sensible decisions that are sustainable. And I say that, but last week there was a day, I'll have you know, I got up at 5 a.m., and I finished work at 11 p.m., and I barely left my computer. But we made the deadline, and I'll do that if it's super important. But I can't do that every day. It's going to make me crazy. Or every release. No, I, I won't. I mean, I will do it when it's really important, but the developers are there with me, and my boss is there with me. I'm not alone doing it. So, And that's huge because I, I, I don't know if you've been in an environment like this, but I certainly have where, uh, and I'm, I'm sure others have too, Yusuf, you know, where it's like on a, on a Thursday night, you're kind of biting your nails because it's like I know the developers are going to be done around this time, and then my Friday and into my weekend is going to be screwed because it's like, okay, QA and release engineering, go, and full steam ahead. And it's like, well, I, I had plans on Saturday. It's like, um, sorry. When the developer was, it's funny, you come in on Monday, you look like Right. And the developer's like, oh, you know, yeah, I went windsurfing and, and you just kind of want to smack them. It well, sounds like in your current is environment. Not done, a sprint means testing is done by the end of that day, Friday. So another thing is having a sprint and Friday is terrible. What that's going to do is harm the team. Yeah. So, do you think a lot of companies play games with that? Because I've I've actually lived that where not where companies that want to keep good testers. Yeah, I've heard there's not very many of us left. They need to understand. There's two guys named Skippy who they're going to burn out in two years. There's a few people with experience, and there's not enough people left to ruin your best people. Yeah. We end our sprints on Wednesdays, do our demos on Thursdays. I, I did want to, because we were talking about how you manage this, and I was going to point out, it sounded like, because you were talking about you can do an official build or whatever that has a single feature, and you set up your Jenkins infrastructure to do that. So when you were talking about that, one of the other things that I think is often not thought a lot about, and Pete, I know you worked on a lot of this sort of thing recently, where it's like, you really have to focus on your infrastructure to allow you to do some of that scaling. Like if you could only do a build that had every check-in of the entire day, you wouldn't be able to do this sort of isolated pair feature development with a QA and a developer together, right? Well, it took us a while to do that, just so you know. 
we had to first, well, we had to learn Git and change over to GitHub mm -hmm. from what we were using before. And it took us two iterations to get to where we could promote them outside of them being synchronized and then get everything to work rolled up into one larger build. So um, we're very lucky that we've iterated to that point. And I right. think that it, that's how it has to be done is you have to start with having some builds at all and then get more and more granular with it. Yeah, no, I, exactly. And that was my point, though, is that I think a lot of times when we look at organizations like Etsy or Facebook or some of these other unicorn organizations, and it, it's not like rocket science. It's that they basically focused on a lot of this infrastructure stuff to the detriment maybe of features or maybe they did a little less features over the course of uh, a quarter to get some of this other stuff that allowed them to do the kind of scaling of people in healthy ways that you're talking about. Bye. By the way, you know you talked about the Friday sprint. I wanted to tell you before I forgot. I don't consider my job when I get the feature that I need to test all of it. I just need to test as far as I can until I'm blocked and hand it off to the developers. Hmm. Is that terrible? There's a ping pong, and it's natural, and it's healthy. And that is, I do my job as far as I can. They do their job as far as they can. And we need to pass it back and forth a few times. I can't do that process by myself. That's why they're still there at night if I'm still testing. Yeah, I've seen that handled in a very unhealthy way to answer your question, but sounds like you're in an environment where they understand the value of that. Because I've seen that where it's like, I didn't actually you see this where the QA team is on some other continent or something and it's like, okay, we hand the build off to them. They go and test and they immediately get blocked and so their day is wasted. So then they ping it back across the ocean and then they get up and they fix it. And you know, when people try to play those games where the teams aren't synchronized and they can't really talk to each other, in their, in their mind, it's like, oh, we're 24, you know, the sun never sets on development and QA. That's like, no, actually, it's not as smooth as you think if you look at it. I totally agree. The other thing is, as far as playing that hot potato game, I think the most important skill a tester can have is to unblock themselves. And it's not just science. There's an art to it. It mm -hmm. takes a certain amount of stubbornness and ingenuity to be good at that. And it's, it's something really hard to interview for. And I wish more companies would give testers a chance to work on one project and hire the people who are good at that. They'd be so much better off if they did. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the, I'm not sure if everyone is familiar with like this sort of green, black, red, blue, whatever, two color paradigm testing in the cloud world, I guess, where you can shuttle up what's considered a canary node and send shadowed data or forked data through this service. And from that, you make a determination whether that feature or set of features or whatever the code change is is healthy. And from that, scale out and descale your previous group. Or if it's terrible, you just terminate it and go back to... Cool. You know, Tell me more back. about this. Is this a tool? No, no, no. Not, I don't know what you mean. Not a tool. I guess it's just like there's a lot that leads up to it. You can't just like snap your fingers. But I'm, I'm talking largely about the world of Amazon AWS where you're able to bring up a single node and a new auto-scaling group and send shattered or forked data through it through your configuration service and then make a determination on whether that service is healthy through whatever metrics you're going to be measuring, whether the queue is backed up or CPU is pinned or lagging, service is crashing, you know, page load times, whatever you want to do, uh, and then make a determination on whether you're going to keep that change or not and punt it. I, I guess the question to me is, like, I don't understand 
and it's from my lack of understanding. I'm not doubting the, the, the desire, but I'm I'm struggling to understand the world of QA in this particular realm. Like it sounds like you're talking about doing performance and load testing, which is one really. Spe- there's two areas of QA that are very specialized. One of them is security, and the other one is performance and load testing. So um, we work on the Amazon cloud all the time. Just so you know, our company is the only provider of InDesign server in the cloud, like the headless server version in the cloud. However, the server testing itself is done in the cloud, not by us. So we don't do that part. It's extremely specialized and it's very tool driven. And it has a lot to do with how many cores you load up and you track what the load is in terms of the data. So yes, there's a ton. I know a little bit about this because I've researched it, not because most testers know about it, but because it's part of a solid testing strategy to know what your performance and security. So what you're talking about is specifically performance testing and most it's a really specialized area and it, you can't really do that well without tools there's no such thing as a solely manual performance testing strategy there's some tests you can do with a stopwatch I like to test for visual perceived performance like okay the server says it's done the client says it's done but do I still have an hourglass where it looks like it's not done that kind of thing but most all of it's done by tools and metrics the other thing it sounds like too is that with that kind of model with that kind of release model where you know you have your infrastructure and you kind of roll to new versions of it. Netflix is is the poster child for this model of development. That doesn't necessarily tell you if you've solved a business case. Well, or, it doesn't or even tell you is. you can look at the UI. It doesn't even tell you if it shows up on the user's screen. It's yeah. really sadly lacking, but it's one good data point. So you want to, there may be uh, performance metrics that have to be hit for it to be released. And I think that's what you're talking about, where there's, maybe the requirement is it cannot be slower, period. And you're running tests against the last build. And if it's slower, it can't release. That would be one example. Well, I guess it depends on the service you're talking about. Like we regularly roll out UI changes and most of these companies are testing the UI changes in a small populace. And then based on the results or feedback, they either scale that bigger or throw it away, you know? So it's hmm. not just performance or load. Cool. It's like A-B testing and you know, it's a whole host of things. And again, like, I'm not discounting the, the need for QA. I just like... No, no, I understand what you're talking about. I do. I guess I'm not understanding. So the big question I have is I have nothing useful to contribute without knowing what the validation is on those tests. How are they being validated? What are they compared against? What's the baseline? Because, um, yeah, this is a great direction. Our builds, of course, have validation criteria that they have to pass to be valid. In a purely, I mean, here's the thing. Any of those systems are complex. And so in a purely sort of automated context, and if you roll that way, the, I mean, really, you can infer more, it sounds like. But really, you're just testing, does this change not take my infrastructure down? Like, does it not peg my CPU or whatever, right? And you can infer other things, but there are always going to be cases where, yeah, the UI doesn't pop up or whatever. You know, I would whatever never release anything to production without any human tests. However, we can really, really reduce them. So I love having, the more we have automated, the more we have dashboards to show us what's happening in production, the more confident we can be with fewer and fewer sanity checks before it goes out. So 
So I'm a big fan of letting machines do what they're good at. So I'm not I'm pro automation. I it's my goal to be a good cyborg where my human intelligence is as enhanced as it can be. I think there's a lot of times that I've seen too where like it's the amount of effort and time to build any sort of like automated testing into certain applications is not really worth the value based on having real human people with minds who can like capture it. When I worked at a company that did email archiving, we had a lot of very intricate ways in which you could like search for data and based on like how you searched and just all these different scenarios and how they would break down that we tried to automate them just a bunch of times to get the tests to be fully automated but inevitably we just missed something like it just kind of required a mind to look and analyze like the results so that they could then run further tests on it so it was well there's no better pattern matching algorithm or tool than the human mind attached to our eyes that we currently know of. And we can match in ways that aren't fully understood by science. So what I would like to do as a tester, what excites me is to maximize my ability to validate by using tools to unblock me. So the stuff that's easy to check for, I want to waste less of my time. I never want to waste time on a build that flat out doesn't work. So if I can eliminate that, I have more time to do the kind of testing that takes a human mind. So I see automation as a great way to maximize your testing time. Another thing is setups totally kill your testing time. If it takes a long time to set something up, how much better to just start where you need to be with everything set up. So it's that kind of stuff I like to automate and I like to see effort be put into to maximize the testers that you do have and enable them to also communicate clearly. So things like having Jing available or whatever free recording tool they want to use or that costs, as long as you can recreate the bugs easily, share it with anyone anywhere. A lot of time that's taken up by trying to go back and forth about bugs or set something up properly to get it to happen. I love automation that reduces that time. It sounds like I once remember we were talking earlier about sort of Microsoft saying, well, okay, developers are just going to write tests and then QA people, you you have to be developer. And I was reminded of sort of the joke that's like, you know, it's inherent kind of in this question. It's like, well, where does QA fit into something where we can just auto-scale everything and have monitoring. And I'm reminded of the joke that like a QA person is a person that looks both ways on a one-way street before crossing it. And so there's just a different mindset when they approach certain problems, whether or not they're writing code to test it automation or whatever. It's just they approach the problem space differently. And I know as a build engineer, we approached it differently all the time where it's like, yes, I, I, I love your treatise on versioning, but let me tell you the 48 ways that I've run into that that is busted in some way. Absolutely. Is that, yeah. In 2008, I wrote this presentation that was kind of my manifesto, I thought, at the time. And it was about code coverage and about how covering the code isn't the point, you know. Because the problems that we find that are important are what's not in the code, not what is. So focusing all of our time and attention on beating on what is in the code that's that's not looking the other way on the one-way street. That's looking the one place that we know we thought of, not all the things we didn't think of. So it's it's hard for me to get, not saying we shouldn't check the code and we shouldn't cover it, because clearly we should put some effort in functional testing. But when I hear all this focus on functional testing and the requirements, the requirements are the only thing we did think of. There's this whole world that we didn't think of that's probably broken. 
So <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. hard for me to get enthused about it. And now it's just sort of coming to light because people are feeling the pain from those past decisions from 2008. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I mean, I, I remember someone who used to bang this drum where they were like, I don't care about unit tests. I don't even really care if we run them because all I care about are the integration tests. And when I heard that, I was like, do you understand who your primary, as a, as a build person, do you understand who your primary customers are? They are the developers in QA. So you better run those unit tests. He's like, I, I just don't care about them. I care about the integration tests more. And and it, it occurs to me, it's like, it, it's kind of cliche, but it's like, it takes a village, right? To, to, get, to get quality. Like it takes all of these approaches. And so, I mean, would you agree there's a fallacy in thinking about, oh, well, the more monitoring we can do, we can just lob off this entire department because we have monitoring. I think that there needs to be a little bit more balance. I believe in a balanced approach. And that means, yes, there's some code coverage. Yes, there's monitoring. Yes, we test our new feature before just throwing it in the build. And then we do the integration test. But I think the lack of balance has led to some hysteria and some really people who sound more extreme than probably they would if things weren't so unbalanced. So it's just really the lack of balance that's causing some people to say they don't care at all about unit tests. I mean, you, of course you want some unit tests. You don't want to waste time running the integration tests if the unit tests fail. Right. Right? right. The earlier we know, the better. It saves time. It saves money. It's just having unit tests does not take care of everything. And I think that if that person felt like they were heard and that the integration tests were known to have value, maybe they wouldn't be hysterically screaming about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it, that's a very astute point. When somebody is that energetic and activated about a particular topic, there's probably something else going on there. Well, so the main thought question that spurred this episode was with continuous delivery, continuous integration, cloud, like all of these new technologies, and the speed with which we're sort of deploying this stuff. Th the thought question was, are we in a post-QA world? What do you think? I, it sounds like we're not. <laughs> There's still a lot there, and, and we may have shifted things around, but we're not in a post-quality or post-quality engineering world. I think the role of quality has very much changed. And it's important that the developers see themselves as part of the quality team, that they're responsible for quality as much as a tester. And we may participate in different ways, but basically, hopefully they will see that the testers are saving them the time and effort of running a bunch of tests. And they're, they're just running different types of tests, right? Because developers are still testing their code. They're testing it every time. They're just checking to see that things compile. That's a type of a test and that we can learn from each other. So I believe that testing as a discipline is a lot closer linked to developers than they've ever been before. And working closely with developers is part of how things have changed. And that's especially true on Agile teams. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also I know Pete will agree with this. It's ops teams as well. Ops teams are responsible for quality and being part of that active and engaged in the pipeline. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Well, Lynette, this conversation has been fascinating. It's funny. We were talking about, I think we got through maybe half of the questions that we wanted to ask you, but your insights on this have been really awesome. We, we're all ops people and, and build engineers, and so having somebody who lives in the quality space, we're kind of on the, the edges of that, and, and as we said, you know, we're involved, but but it, your, your insights have been great. Will you come back and do a quality panel with us sometime? I've be glad to. That'd be really fun. And just so you know, I'm brand new in the DevOps space. You know, I promote builds and I have 
made some build scripts for Jenkins. So I'm brand new, but I have my Jenkins book, and I consider myself a beginning hobbyist in this space, and I think it's got a ton of potential. I'm excited about what kind of opportunities it can open up for testers to at least understand the basics so we can work with DevOps people more constructively. I, th I think there's a lot that can be done in this space where testers can better communicate what's wrong with the build and work with their DevOps person to become less blocked. So Yeah, totally. Well, and it's funny when you were saying that, it's like, you know what, that's how it always starts. That's how that crossover and sharing starts. Maybe the ops people learn Chef and they share it with the developers or, or vice versa or whatever. So you're on the right track. Welcome to the party. It's a big Awesome. Thank you for so much for inviting me. And I really look forward to learning more. Yeah. No, no. yeah. Uh, and we'll be back in a moment here on the show. Welcome back to The Ship Show. So for our last segment tonight, we have another tool tip in store for you. Yusuf, you found out about something called Percol. I don't know what Percol stands for, but tell us what Percol is. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what Percol stands for either, but, <laughs> but um, it's, a, uh, it's an interactive Python-based uh, grep tool. So you, know, you use it on the command line. So you can do things like, you know, I know a lot of people like run find commands across the log files, and you know maybe they pipe it to XRs and they're grepping for stuff. So the idea here is that you're going to use this tool, and then it's, you'll you'll kind of get like a stream of data going through, and you and you'll see like like I said, it's interactive, so you, you'll get to see uh, whatever it is you're querying for. So it's got like a string-based query mechanism, and um, you can also query by regular expression. So it's pretty handy. And um, so let me make sure I understand this. So basically, what you're saying is like if I'm, it's interactive, right? Right. So. If I'm like looking at a log file and I, I can cat this log file, pipe it to percol, and then when I do that, it'll pop up uh, like a, a shell or something? Yeah, it's kind of like an NCURSIS type uh, yeah. interface. And then and I, you can... I can then change my regular expression in real time. It'll update what it found. Yes. Uh, okay, I, I think I'm going to cry with joy. Uh, <laughs> how many times have we all done this thing where we like are grepping for things and we get the regular expression wrong and we don't? And so you know you got to rerun all of that like for long running processes. This is awesome. Yeah. Where did you find this? I actually subscribed to a weekly uh, Python mail list, and this is because the tools written in Python. Um, uh -huh. seven, I think. They brought it up, and I decided to look into it, and it's awesome. Oh man, this yeah. is going to be so cool! I, I they a couple of integrations that they put up, but it looks like you can do interactive pgrep pkill. Uh, yeah. You can integrate it with your Z shell history and tmux for Seth. You can integrate <gasps> with tmux. I don't know what you can do, but you, there's an integration here. Yeah, I haven't even I didn't even try the the tmux thing. I was just going over like oh, so much love. A lot of love files. Yeah, yeah, it's an awesome tool. Whoever this yeah. is, Moose on GitHub. What is their name? Um, I can't pronounce that name. Masafumi Oyamada, or Moose on GitHub. Anyway, we will definitely link to that. I will be installing that right after this episode is over. That's totally going to happen. Well, thanks for that, uh, yeah. Yusuf. That's an awesome tooltip. So as we always do, we will be linking to the conferences that are upcoming in the next couple of months. You can see the show notes for all of the information on that. I did want to call out a couple of things. I did my postmortem, a look at looking in the mirror talk at Velocity, and Dave Zwieback is actually uh, reprising his awesome postmortems workshop that he did at ChefConf. That's going to be in New York on July 10th, and there is a chance I may actually be facilitating that workshop with him as I did at ChefConf. So if you want to learn... About 
about how to do awesome postmortems in an awesome environment with an awesome instructor. Dave and Yulia will be facilitating it. I may or may not be there, and uh, you should definitely check that out, though. We'll put the link to register for that in the show notes. And then, uh, actually, I was just looking at this, Pete. Going to Orlando. Going to be fun. Agile 2014. There's a bunch of us that are going to be there. Orlando in the heat of the summer. I cannot. Yeah. You know what? I was laughing. I was looking at the hotel because I was uh, stuff. I was looking at my reservation. They give you free water, unlike a lot of other places. They, they just don't want you to like fall over and collapse and die. That's probably a good idea, considering yeah. how humid it will be. <laughs> yeah, it's good. So, yeah, but if you want to see Kevin Bear, Pete, me, is Andrew Schaefer, I think he's talking to. A bunch of people are talking to Agile. If you want to... Uh, it's actually a really great lineup. Yeah, I'm really impressed by the organizers. They put together a really great lineup for us. Yeah, yeah. I think Dominica's talking, too. She's awesome. Yeah, yeah so, so uh, check that out. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And then, of course, as always, DevOps conferences will have... Oh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention DevOps Days Minneapolis, which is also an awesome lineup. Sasha will be keynoting, so uh, we'll put a link to that. You missed Early Bird, but it doesn't matter. You should still go. So, thanks to our friends at PagerDuty for sponsoring this episode. Check them out at pagerduty.com. We'll be a link in the show notes. And so, from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From Newton, Massachusetts, this is Pete signing off. From Drake in Massachusetts, this is EJ signing off. You guys should wave to each other as you sign off. (laughs) And we'll see y'all in a couple weeks.